Oh, welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced as ever by Matt Horniak. Listeners are invited to call the program uh, at 412-621-9728. We also monitor electronic mail during the show. You can send mail to bob at leftout.info, and I, I generally get those with a couple of minutes delay. So t- uh, today's program, we have a we have a guest on today whose uh, name is uh, Mark Levine, who's an author, who's a professor, associate professor of modern Middle Eastern history, culture, and Islamic studies at the University of California in Irvine, who's recently written a book called "Why They Don't Hate Us: Lifting the Veil on the Axis of Evil." Uh, Mark Levine, welcome to Left Out. Thank you so much for having me. I wondered uh, whether you, we could start out for the benefit of our listeners today and perhaps uh, summarize kind of the main themes of your book. I found it to be a very interesting perspective on the problems of the Middle East that is uh, not the sort of story we're usually told on, uh, the, let's say, the corporate media around the country. Well, I mean, there were several reasons I wrote the book. I wrote the book after living and working in the region for most of the past 15 years, and just seeing how incredibly, not not just biased mainstream or corporate media is, but how just um, unknowing, for lack of a better, how ignorant the, the media is of the realities in the Middle East. And I think that's really been exacerbated since 9-11 and the war on terror. And we've seen the results of this kind of combination of what I call ignorance and arrogance, an axis of ignorance and ignorance and arrogance in the uh, the total unwillingness of the media to take on President Bush before the outbreak of the, of the Iraq war and stop what everyone who wanted to know would have known what the disaster was going to be that has unfolded. But uh, So the first reason was just to educate as a professor. I, I think it's so crucial that we know more about what's going on. The second reason is because I think there's, on the one hand, so much more positive going on in the region than we know about. And on the one hand, this can sound like President Bush, who, who says many of the same things, let's say vis-a-vis Iraq, many good things are happening. But the difference is, is that, in fact, usually when good things are happening, they're happening despite American interests and American intervention, not because of American intervention. That doesn't mean, however, that the region is a hotbed of anti-Americanism, because, in fact, most Muslims around the world that I've met do not hate America. They do not hate the West. They do not hate Jews, you know, all the stereotypes we have. What they do dislike vehemently is our support for all the dictatorships and corruption and um, brutality in the region for so many decades. So I wanted to, first of all, give people a history so they can understand the history of the region, what our own role, first Europe and then the U.S., has been in creating the mess we're living in, why we don't walk the talk, and this is a very important thing because people love, or most people love the rhetoric of democracy and freedom, but they see that the rhetoric is so rarely matched by reality, and that makes people very frustrated. So to explain these dynamics, and then to try to show how people on the grassroots can actually get involved, take control of our own foreign policies, reach out to the Muslim world, and help create a different future. Wow, so that's a beautiful summary, and it's, uh, I can say, uh, vouching for having read the book myself, there's a tremendous wealth of information in all of that that you're summarizing. So I wonder if we could start out with one point, which is uh, a few weeks ago we had on uh, on Left Out a man named uh, Sam Harris. Uh, you may have heard of him, I'm not sure. And his uh, his main one of his main themes was that there's something distinctive about Islam that makes people especially hateful and and prone to violence. And I wondered if you could comment on what you would say is the, are the true motives for the the political difficulties and conflicts we're experiencing in Middle East, North Africa. Yeah, 
I mean, this idea that there's something distinctful about any one particular group is just utterly ludicrous. There's absolutely no basis for this. In fact, if you want to say any one group is more, uh, you know, is more inclined towards violence, you could say it's the West, given the fact that uh, more people have been murdered for uh, through the West, by the West, because of the ideals of the West, than probably every other culture in the history of the world combined. But of course, that's ludicrous too. So the, the, the reason the title of the book is Why They Don't Hate Us is, first of all, to say that contrary to the headlines after 9-11, which asked why do they hate us, that they don't, but more importantly that there's no one they and no one us. We know in America there's at least two us's that don't even like each other very much. And in the Middle East, if you talk about the whole Muslim world from Morocco or Mauritania all the way to Pakistan, never mind Southeast Asia, you're talking about well over a billion people with you know hundreds of different languages and customs and to try to say there's something about Islam as if there's one thing called Islam that can that you can characterize so simply as being predisposed towards hatred. All, the, all that gentleman is doing is mirroring exactly the discourse of Al-Qaeda <laughs> and exactly the discourse of the, of the ex Muslim extremists who say the West is by definition evil and out to get us and therefore we're justified in using whatever violence we have to do in order to stop them. And and it, you know, where has that gotten us? Not very far. And it bears emphasis what an infinitesimal fraction of the population Al-Qaeda represents. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, even if a million Muslims were actively involved in terrorism, which is a completely <clears throat> absurd number, but let's say there was a million Muslims, that'd be, you know, one, I don't know, one five thousandth of, <laughs> of the number of world Muslims. A far greater number of Americans are involved in the war in Iraq, which has killed 100,000 uh, Iraqis and done untold damage to our reputation and to our moral standing in the world than Muslims have participated in terror against us. So, you know, we need to look in the mirror first. That's the first thing. So so one thing I wanted, I know your time is short, so I wanted to get to this point, which I found very interesting in your book, which is the uh, role of uh, what I would call, in my own words anyway, economic and cultural globalization in uh, in our problems with the affairs of the uh, Middle East and North African nations. Well, the, the problem is when we start talking about globalization and we actually look at how mainstream scholars define globalization, it turns out it's not really happening in the Middle East, actually in much of the, the global south, but especially the Middle East, which I believe is it's been structurally marginalized from the main circuits or the main flows of economic globalization, except for oil and except for weapons. And what these two wonderful Israeli scholars, Jonathan Nitzan and Simshon Bichler, have shown in their intensive research on the relationship between petrodollars and weapon dollars, what they call the petrodollar weapon dollar coalition in America and around the world, really has, has helped sustain this kind of cycle of war, violence, oppression, occupation, and made it very hard for those who want to imagine an alternative future to actually have a chance to do so. But in lieu of a real economic globalization, in other words, in lieu of what Thomas Friedman dreams should be happening, actually happening, what is happening is a cultural globalization. Cultural globalization has been penetrating the region for decades, and now more so than ever with satellite TV, with the Internet. And what it is is it's offering an image of a lifestyle. And it's not just a, a Western or American lifestyle. You can see this on Arab TV. You can see it in Arab commercials. It's not an Americanization. It's a world culture of consumption, of neoliberalism that most people cannot afford to participate in, but few people can resist. It's like pornography. And, what, and when you get shown this long enough and you can't resist it but can't 
attain it, it really starts to create what many people call an almost schizophrenic condition. And that's in many ways what has happened in the Muslim world. I'm a musician as well as an academic. And some of the artists I work with talk about cultural schizophrenia. And they even name songs or bands after, uh, after the term schizophrenia. And you see this um, when Muslim critics talk about the idea of a cultural invasion of, by the West. You can just see the fear that this generates that it doesn't happen to people when they're in a much better economic position so they feel comfortable enough to take what they want and not take what they don't want. And that's really the, the really you know insidious almost dynamic between a lack of economic globalization and a, just an, an, an almost an invasion of cultural globalization. And then I think part of your argument is that leads to a backlash, backlash in the form of religious fundamentalism. Well, it does in America. I mean, the one thing I learned <laughs> I, while I was doing this book, I was reading my friend Tom Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas, and as I was reading it, I kept. I had to call him a couple of times and say, you know what, everything you're saying about Kansas I could say about the Middle East, which is why in part of the first chapter I have a chapter on what's the matter with Islam, what's the matter with America. And yes, this is a worldwide phenomenon, and it's something that is happening everywhere. The difference is, is that in America we can afford to project our anger at this outwards, and we can use other countries and, and other racial groups or ethnic groups to become the reason for the problems we're having. But in the Middle East, if you do that, it becomes us that, we're look, that they're looking at, and this leads to exactly the same kind of violence against us that we're perpetrating against them. So this is a dynamic the book is trying to move beyond and creating what I call an axis of empathy instead of an axis of evil. And so um, to finish up, I know your, your time is short. I wonder if you might summarize your message there at the end of the book. Well, I mean, I, first of all, the, the most important message is there's no longer an excuse. There are people to talk to. We as Americans, and the same thing about Muslims, by the way, there's no excuse for them either. There, no one on this planet has an excuse anymore for not reaching out to others, for not imagining a different future, and to try to work through it. Um, a friend of mine, this well-known Swiss Muslim theologian, Tariq Ramadan, who our government, of course, forbid from coming here to take up a position at Notre Dame, said something wonderful once. He said, look, as a Muslim, what... I can no longer say what's good for Islam is just what's good for Islam. If something is good for Islam but not good for the world, then it can't be good for Islam. And if something is good for the world, then it has to be good for Islam. And I think he hit on something. I think in America, we also need to think broader. What, what is good for America if it's not good for the rest of the world, like consuming so much of the world's energy or global warming or militarism or all of this? Then it should no longer be defined as good for America and part of our core identity. And there are many thousands, millions of Muslims trying to build an alternative system based on this realization, and they need to be joined by all of us. So the main theme of the book is, the main goal of the last part of the book is to help people, give people the tools to see, okay, how do I reach out? Whom do I reach out to? What is the language we need to be speaking? And what are some concrete steps, concrete political steps that we can take as a movement towards peace that can demand that America actually walk the talk and that the Muslim world actually walk its talk too so that we can build you know, the kind of world that we know we need to in the next decade or two before it's too late. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for that quick summary. I'm sorry that you can't stay longer, but I will. Well, I'd love to come back. And we'll try I, to have I'm you on sure another time. We'll, we'll be doing it soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate thank your being you so on Left Out. Yeah. Bye. Bye. 
So that was, uh, we were talking to Mark Levine, who is a associate professor of Mid- modern Middle Eastern history, culture, and Islamic studies at the University of California of Irvine, who's written a new book uh, called uh, uh, called uh, Why They Don't Hate Us, Lifting the Veil on the Axis of Evil. If you'd like to comment or discuss uh, Mark Levine's appearance, you're welcome to call us, uh, 412-621-9728, or you can also send uh, electronic mail to bob at leftout.info, and uh, we'll get that mail during during the show. So unfortunately, uh, Mark Levine's uh, time was rather short today, and we weren't uh, able to discuss with him as thoroughly as we might like uh, this very interesting book. But I would like to uh, would like to uh, recommend to our listeners on Left Out that you do uh, pick up the book and 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 have a look at it. It's a very interesting perspective that's quite uh, different from what you're going to see on uh, you know ABC World News tonight. Uh, it's on Oxford University Press, uh, their One World Publications uh, division, and um, yeah, I'm sure you can get it at uh, any uh, any well-known uh, bookseller. It was published last uh, August, uh, still widely available, and uh, you should have a look at it. What's really, I think, for me, very interesting is his analysis about um, globalization or the failure of globalization, and this, as, as Mark Levine was just, uh, was just commenting a, a few minutes ago, uh, the, the, the sense of uh, powerlessness that the average person mm-hmm. in Middle East and North Africa feels. And he speaks of this from a position of someone who's lived there for many years, travels there extremely frequently. In fact, we had a hard time booking him on Left Out because he was off in the Middle East somewhere. So, so the, the basic the idea is that it would be um, these people see culturally what goes on in other places, and they they see that they're not and they're fascinated near by that. but they're nowhere near. They're as fascinated yeah. by as anyone, and they're but they're also nowhere near that. In particular, I, uh, I'm of course imposing my own interpretation of what I've read here, but uh, so be it. Uh, and and people, you know, feel that the, as Mark Levine and somewhere in his book, I don't remember the exact quote, uh, remarks that you know the various there are many governments in the Middle East that are, wouldn't last you know ten minutes in a situation where the U.S. wasn't propping them up. And I'm sure he had in mind, for example, the Saudi monarchy or possibly the Egyptian government and other governments. Mm-hmm. So people feel like they're they're client states already of the United. States, they're uh, being oppressed in some way or being by that, and they're also being, you know, awash in all of the cultural influences from not just the U.S., but Europe, uh, Western part of the world, developed part of the world, but primarily the U.S., and there's a reaction to that, and part of the reaction to it is a kind of adherence to religious fundamentalism, just as here, as we see in America's so-called heartland and the uh, the Bible Belt and the red states, uh, we see a kind of reaction over the last, uh, who knows, number of years, several decades, uh, that is also mirrored exactly by religious fundamentalism that's, that is uh, exploited and fostered and encouraged by radical clerics mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, Rat Robertson in uh, Oklahoma <laughs> and uh, and his ilk. And, of course, all the way up through the, uh, the putative president of the United States, George Bush, who pretends to be a religious man in order to benefit, uh, in order to benefit himself politically right. by exploiting these uh, attitudes. And so we see the ever increasing rise of ignorance and uh, and and denial of fundamental pre- precepts of a secular society that we supposedly have here in the United States of America. Um, so we're uh, so that was as I say we were talking with Mark Levine. We're going to take a, a short here. I think we're up for a musical break for a couple of moments, and we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back uh, very shortly. Thanks for listening to Left Out. <clears throat> Hopefully that will do it. Do we have...
Uh, well, welcome back to Left Out. We have a brief, uh, I don't know, I suppose you could call that a musical interlude. We have a brief uh, <laughs> brief bit of noise there on the over the air for, for so due to technical uh, complications, I think. Uh, so as we're back with Left Out, and you're welcome to give us a ring and uh, and talk about uh, anything you'd like, but in particular, if you uh, if you happen to hear uh, Mark Levine, who we'd been looking forward to as a guest on Left Out, was just, uh, just was on, um, talking about his book, Why They Don't Hate Us, uh, Lifting the Veil on the Axis of evil and also a coining a phrase uh, about the United States uh, the, being the center for the, the axis of ignorance and arrogance, which I think is uh, well put. Uh, speaking of ignorance and arrogance, uh, the president had a, uh, had a uh, press conference today in which uh, apparently, I haven't seen the transcript of the whole press conference, but apparently, amongst other things, Helen Thomas, uh, at long last, uh, asked him plainly what are his actual reasons for going to war in Iraq. Given that all of the, re- all of the stated reasons have turned out to be utter nonsense, what, what are his actual reasons for going to the war in Iraq? Well, you can imagine that that uh, that left the uh, our our exceptionally articulate president at uh, something of a loss for words. So he stumbled around for a while talking about Afghanistan, and Helen Thomas interrupted and said, "No, I'm talking about the war in Iraq. We're not talking about Afghanistan." And he bumbled around with that for a while, and then he just told bald face lie about how he you know went to the UN and how Saddam Hussein threw out the inspectors. Yeah, he All said this, that. Yes, complete nonsense. It's absolute total nonsense from start to finish. It's so uh, one of the uh, comments uh, comments I saw, I think it might have been on Did the press talking points memo. No, of course not, because you know these press conferences are extremely rigged, and even someone who's relatively cheeky like Helen Thomas doesn't get the opportunity. She gets talked down and talked over, and the other the other reporters instead of standing there are saying, "No, answer the question. We're not answering any asking any other questions. You should answer that question." But of course, the reason being that mostly, very many of the other reporters, the ones who aren't plants actually, are uh, you know represent. Uh, other points of view, let us say, and so it's not in their interest. They're happy to step on, on on someone like Helen Thomas, but she at least got the got the words in, asking him what, yeah. what's what's the real reason we went to war, Mr. President, and he offered uh, nonsense, total nonsense. I, I'm I'm even surprised he was able to come up with that, but somewhere they must have rehearsed him uh, and told him what he's supposed to say in such circumstances. So he started uh-huh. on about the complete fiction about the uh, rewriting the whole thing. Yeah, yeah re- about he wanted happen. to go to the UN, and Saddam Hussein threw out the inspection. Complete nonsense. You In know, fact, the inspectors nonsense. had unfettered access to Absolutely, everything, and they yeah. weren't finding anything Ab- either. <laughs> For several months, they were going to all the sites that the CIA had been <clears throat> supposedly telling them to go to. They found nothing, and then they had to be kicked out because there was they that had to the be bombing was starting because the bombing was starting because if it didn't start pretty soon, it would be pretty apparent that the shabby case for the war was absolutely was an absolute tissue of lies. That, that's the real that's one of the real kickers that we know we've of course seen the Downing Street memos and all that stuff later on. But at the time, the reason I one of the reasons I knew it was a farce was because they weren't this, this the idea of a threat was completely um, undermined by. What was happening, which was the inspectors were looking around everywhere and not finding anything. To then conclude that there's a massive threat is just it's preposterous. Uh, it's absolutely preposterous, yes. So, it was um, preposterous. I wanted to mention something related to, um, I mean, as you, as you're, if you're a first-time listener on our program, you can get the idea that we're not big fans of George W. Bush. And one of the things that we we, we often talk about in you know, the latest scandal, the latest outrage of, of the latest lie or whatever that he, that he did lately, um, and... We're 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 kind of astonished uh, that that there exists so many people who still support him. I mean, his, his approval rating is going down into the low 30s at this point, but that still means that one third of the people in this country still support him. So we're still we're still kind of in shock about that. And so, um, 
one thing that uh, we had a caller last time who who was a Bush supporter, and and um, it would be cool to get another Bush supporter to call in, and and we promised to be polite and 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 have a polite conversation. And what what I would like to do is I'd like to just get an understanding of rather than shouting at each other um, and and try you know and and uh, having a shouting match and cutting each other off and stuff, have a conversation to try to figure out where the disconnect is. Um, is it because there are certain facts that we believe that you don't believe? Um, uh, or or well, you, you believe other facts that we don't believe and so on? Uh, or is there some values issue? Say that, well, the most important thing to you, I'm talking to a hypothetical Bush supporter, is, for example, eliminating abortion. And if that, that issue is more important than everything else combined, um, then Bush maybe have been a better candidate than Kerry because maybe he would have, um, you know, prevented more abortions, although that's arguable also, given his... his given the other policies. The other policies of cutting birth control mm. and, and, and cutting mm. a sex, sex education and stuff, yeah, which, absolutely. of course, leads to more pregnancies. So even that, you can't... But still, <laughs> uh, you could say that the abortion no, no, issue overrules down. everything, uh, and therefore I'm accepting all the other lies and all the other insane policies. Um, that would be another way in which, you know, we, you might or some other the, uh, somebody might support Bush. There's also uh, logic and reasoning. Yeah, there might be a sequence of points, uh, logical steps, which, well, Bob and I are, are professional reasoners about, you know, we analyze, <laughs> we, we're computer scientists, we um, we think about theoretical issues in computer science uh, for a living, so we think we're pretty good at, at reasoning through these these problems. Um, and um, But that would be another possible way in which somebody could, could, uh, um, could have the same facts and same values but still support Bush. So anyway, it would be very interesting to sort of narrow down what are some of the major things, the breakdown that occurs between a Bush supporter and what you know, and and the way we think? So uh, please give us a call. So the phone number is four one two six two one nine seven two eight six two one W R C T nine seven two eight. And you can also send uh, electronic mail to Bob at leftout.info if you wish to comment. Uh, and if you wish to comment, for, uh, uh, you know, more privately uh, via the email, and I will just uh, read out the gist of your message and uh, not disclose your name if you prefer not. And um, we've also done that in the past as well on the program. So yes, uh, this is a. Uh, it is interesting because if you look at the press, also the way, uh, uh, the way that that suddenly you know so many uh, people, both uh, commentators on the right, various people like you know uh, William Crystal, for example, or uh, William F. Buckley, or um, um, uh, various other right wing commentators, suddenly now that uh, the it's obvious that the Iraq War is a complete stinker, uh, suddenly are changing their tunes and uh, conveniently forget that they're responsible for us going in there. People like. Andrew Sullivan, you know, cheerleading on television uh-huh. nonstop for uh, in favor of the war. Yeah. Now realizing, so the, the thing that needs to be pointed out, and and some, you know, of course, people on the right will always characterize this as kind of petty triumphalism. But the fact is, we were a hundred percent right. You know, Alberta at the time was saying that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Right. Everything he said was exactly right. Everything that the, the I'm blanking on his name, the Swedish uh, what chief oh, weapons oh, inspector Hans, uh, Blitz. Hans Blitz, yeah. uh, said was exactly right. Was, yeah. Uh, let, can, let's be honest can, here. And you can this is a matter that. of stipulating what are the facts in the case. Right. They were exactly right at the time on the nose. So. Another commentator who supported the war, mm. I think still supports, is Christopher Hitchens, who was, was a liberal in the past oh. at some point, and now he's, he's, um, he's a, uh, he switched over and a big, huge supporter of the Iraq War. And, um, what struck me about that is that, um, 
Yeah, well, I mean, just that <clears throat> what I was thinking of, if you, if you were a supporter of the war, I mean, because, because you wanted to, to free the people of Iraq from Saddam Hussein, and that's the sort of most noble um, argument that was given, and I think Hitchens was, was kind of making that argument. But the problem with that is that you have to look at the, the motivation of the person who's actually carrying out the war. Um, it would be like, for example, suppose you said um, um, you put into power, uh, you put into the head of the FBI a mafia person, and then you said, well, um, for some reason you noticed that you weren't catching many mafioso anymore. They, weren't, they just weren't being caught like, in, in, at the rate that they used to be caught. The organized crime was increasing, and you didn't really understand why. And you've got this guy who's a, who's a mafia the, uh, Don, who, who running the FBI? Well, of course you're not going to. I mean, the, the point is that the motivation of the person that's that's running things is going to affect the, po- the the way things the, the actual way things are done. I mean, the whole what they did when they invaded mm. Iraq. I mean, the whole pra- the, what which 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 ministries they preserved, what they did with the police, what they did with the military. All these decisions were made all based on some other purpose. Yes, not, of course. Not making a free and democratic. So, so Iraq. people like Hitchens conveniently were responding to the rhetoric, and people like us were saying this rhetoric is complete nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. It has nothing to do with their true motivations, and right. it's just a distraction to have somebody jingoistically reinforcing. Oh, you know, we're bringing freedom and democracy to Iraq. We're making the world safer when you're looking at what is actually happening and also admittedly especially going back before the invasion you're making some estimation some informed judgment about what is likely to happen both because of you know the the nature of the world the way things are and also the nature of the people who are prosecuting it certainly people i had zero confidence going back four years ago five years ago going back with with, uh, that these guys were going to do anything useful and in fact they did exactly what i thought they were going to do and and the point is again it's not petty triumphalism, but the people on our side of the aisle here were right. We're completely correct about what would happen, what did happen, the incompetence and inability of this government to prosecute that war. And in the process, I had to, you know, put up with all this noise with people like Hitchens, you know, or or what's his name, Friedman, or these characters who are right. supposedly middle of the road, right, balanced right. commentators, who you know were just like mouthing nonsense. Like the the, the real the real argument there was our belief, our contention that this is all nonsense. It has nothing to do with the reality of their motivations. It's patently obvious. Or the way that the press, for example, going back again, you know, made this huge thing about Powell's flimsy nonsense in the UN with some powerful case for work. Right. You right. know, it was cartoons done in PowerPoint by people in his office. It was 10-year-old photographs and videos of, 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 of jets, of, flying, of jets flying somewhere. Yeah. Doing something. Well, no. And the know? funny thing was, complete and, and nonsense. also at the time, complete nonsense. I was talking on a chat room, uh, there's a certain chat room in my department, and I was saying, Powell's speech was at least 50, 50% nonsense. Oh, yeah, I said at, at, at the time I said that. Okay, <laughs> Me this too. Is not after, this is not two years, three years later. This is at the time I said that because I was reading The Nation magazine. I was uh, listening to Democracy Now!, which you can hear on WRCT every morning at 8 o'clock. Um, and we said a different set, look of, at what's really going on. Set, set, set of news sources and figure out what's actually happening. And yeah. a lot of the stuff is transparent. Nonsense. Just looking at um, it. Cartoons, PowerPoint cartoons. So now it turns out, of course, we were, well, of course, <laughs> I mean, it turns evidence. out we were right. After, you know, three years later, it's now becoming obvious to everybody that this was what was going on. Um, so uh, it, it, so now uh, some people are coming back to revisit it, uh, you know, very, from different angles. Uh, but I think it is useful, as I say, it's not just triumphalism, to revisit what was true, what was not true, what were people saying? Because it's a question of remembering and learning from what happened, 
right? Learning from what happened yeah. and learning that what kinds of things are complete nonsense. You know, this talk of freedom and democracy, what, what a load of crap. There's a, the last thing that, that yeah. we have any intention of doing. Now I notice another thing we've talked about frequently on Left Out over the years is the fact that we're building permanent bases in Iraq and that we have absolutely no intention of withdrawing from Iraq anytime soon, if ever. Right. And this is never discussed, never discussed, never discussed, never discussed, it's never, never discussed, discussed. on the meeting, the never discussed. they well, keep saying, wait, talking about... Yeah. Page A4 of the Post-Gazette today, the first time I've ever seen in a commercial uh, media outlet, discusses, uh, you know what, um, you know, we're building permanent bases in Iraq. There's Burger Kings there and Pizza Huts. There's this, you know, 21 square mile base in, uh, I can't remember the name of the town, Irkut or something. 21 square mile Yeah, it's this base? enormous base, right, that they're building there. And and on and on. And they describe how much money is being invested. And, we're like, and I'm like, well, yes, we've been saying this for a long time. And then what happens uh, with Bush's press conference today? He says, well, the decision to withdraw the troops will be made by another president. In other words, we're we're in there at least till two thousand and eight, and and you know if you think we're only in there till two thousand and eight, you're I would say you're absolutely crazy. You're believing nonsense. We're we're there for the foreseeable, for the foreseeable. Mm-hmm. The entire purpose of this war was to occupy Iraq. This is my opinion. Mm-hmm. Let us see how this plays out. I've said this over and over again. The entire purpose of the war was to occupy Iraq. Well, the number of U.S. casualties has is going down slowly. Last month was mm-hmm. only one per day uh, over the last month, as opposed to previous months, which had up to like three or four per three per day. I think. I, I, I so. heard a I heard a remark this morning that the uh, the commander in charge of the police in Basra, uh, the Iraqi police, said he can trust at most one quarter of his police force. It's completely infiltrated. Oh, great! Oh, yeah, absolutely, it's completely infiltrated. But, you know, no, none of this. We didn't have to worry about any of this, right? Oh, no, no. We were going to have to worry about cleaning up the rose petals. That was the main issue. Yeah. Because we would triumphantly go in. It would be the liberation of Paris. And and uh, and so, again, once again, who was right? Who was right in this issue? Who has demonstrated competence? Who has demonstrated logical and reasonable analysis of the situation? Right. Who has been the realist in world affairs in this result? Well, I can tell you one thing. It's not the it's not the right wing uh, politics uh, politicians in the U.S. or the people who are running this war. So it's really, uh, really uh, very important. My producer tells me that Democratic Barbara Lee got a bill passed to withhold money for permanent bases in Iraq. I think it may have gotten the amendment approved or something like that. I have to check on that. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, whether that, of course, will not be passed uh, as a matter of legislation, there's no way uh, that the uh, Republican Congress is going to allow for that. Uh, maybe we have a caller on the line, possibly. I'm not sure. Uh, waiting, waiting a moment here for that. Last week, Russ Feingold, uh, I think it was a Monday, a week ago, Monday, he um, introduced legislation to censure, or move uh, a resolution to resolution. censure Bush um, for um, the illegal spying um, that he that he'd been uh, doing. Now, let us say and this plainly: for deliberately and systematically violating the law. Yes, that exactly, and not only that, but he gave a great speech. I thought because it's outlined what you know what they knew about what was being done, but also the the way that Bush had been presenting it. Uh, beforehand, both beforehand, when he claimed that every wiretap has to be approved by court order, he was saying that during the time when this illegal wiretapping was going on and not being, uh, judges were not approving each wiretap. Okay? He mm-hmm. said that they were. It was just a blatant lie. Blatant lie. In addition, subsequent to that, in the defense... You're not of, calling the president a liar. Well... Don't know, of course not. Um, in the defense uh, of this wiretapping, he's talking about stuff that Lincoln did. Stuff that presidents, you know, a hundred years ago did. Well, that's preposterous. We're talking about 
the wiretap laws were passed yeah. in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. There's been not a single wiretap, single action in violation of FISA by any president since it was passed course, in the 1970s. We're so talking about violating it's, it's, the law, period. Anyway. The law is written, they violated it deliberately. So we have, uh, so we have a speech here from uh, Russ Feingold, which we're going to play over the air. I think we just need to uh, make our connection that I would like our listeners to hear. We'll be back in a few moments.